good to be with you. Um, I, I see a lot of uh, I see a lot of unfamiliar faces, which which makes me really happy. It means you know people are visiting and um, getting connected in here at this congregation. Um, my name is Robert Cunningham, and I'm one of the pastors on Staff of Taste Creek. And um, I, I will uh, I come here and preach occasionally, um, and preach at our other main location. Marshall is. Uh, He's the pastor of this congregation, but it's, it's a joy that I get to come and be with you occasionally and, and uh, preach. And uh, we're in the middle of a series on the different liturgical themes of Advent. Advent um, literally means the coming of uh, somebody important. And, uh, of course, we're celebrating the coming of Jesus. And traditionally, a church recognizes four major themes of the Advent season. And, um, and tonight is the Advent of Peace. We've been doing each of them, and the last one is, is the theme of peace. And I've chosen uh, a very familiar passage, Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. You hear this read a lot around this time of the year. So let's give our attention to it. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, we burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Lord, we submit ourselves now to the preaching of your word. We um, recognize that we are all fallible, including myself, but that your word is infallible, um, that it is perfect, that it always does exactly what you intend for it to accomplish. Um, and so we, we ask that you would be at work in a special way in our lives, Lord. Um, as we consider just the theme of peace, Lord, I want to pray for the hurting tonight. I want to pray for those that you have brought here um, you know exactly who they are. You know exactly why they're here. You have everyone here for a reason, and um, I want to pray for them. I want to pray that you would give them your peace. And, uh, and Lord, overwhelm them with the goodness of your, um, your good news, which can overcome all of our circumstances and even bring this transcendent peace that, that makes no sense but is very real. Um, help us, Lord, to rest in you alone and give me strength um, to preach as is fitting a, a proclaimer of your word. Um, help me to honor you, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. So we, this, <clears throat> we're concluding the Advent series. Um, and Marshall's done a couple. I've done a couple. Um, but tonight we consider the final theme of Advent, um, the Advent of peace. I think, I think one of the things we love about the idea, at least, of Christmas is um, that it feels like um, a momentary, uh, an opportunity for a momentary oasis from the troubles of our life and world, 
Um, no matter what's going on, this, this Christmas season, this, this uh, nostalgic season with all of its traditions and everything, feels like it's an opportunity for us to kind of have a break from, from the madness um, of our lives and of the world and, and, and everything going on around us and at least try to manufacture peace, <laughs> at least try to manufacture joy and goodwill and all of these things. But, um, and I, I, hate to, I hate to be the Grinch tonight and steal your Christmas, but you know, I think we can all admit it never really works the way we imagine. Um, it never turns out the way we imagine. Um, there is something about the idea of Christmas and the holiday season and our traditions and all that that um, have this elevated ideal of kind of a respite from the madness but always seem to fall short. That's why um, we love the, the, uh, the movie Christmas Vacation. Um, it's so funny because it's so true. Um, everybody... I don't know. I, I, I'm assuming. I, see long, I think that movie's still cool. But um, when I was when I was growing up, it was it was the Christmas movie. And 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 and, and what makes it so funny is that everything uh, Clark Griswold is the main guy. Whatever he does, whatever everything he does to try, and and, he, and it's so true. Um, as a father now, I feel I feel this. It's so true because everything he tries to do to manufacture Christmas joy for for his family um, goes wrong. And, um, and, you know, it's, it, he gets all the family together. They end up fighting and, and, and hating each other. And, and uh, you know, he goes and gets the perfect Christmas tree, and it's, uh, it's too big, and it burns down, and there's replacements, got a squirrel in it and all that. And, there's, you know, he does the lights deal, and they don't turn on. And just one thing after another. And, and um, I totally sympathize with this. We went to uh, my kids. We... <laughs> We went to, you know, we were trying to make this tradition of going and cutting down our own tree, just like Clark, you know, just like Clark Griswold. We're going to cut down our own tree. And so we go out to the farm, we get the tree, and it's quite the experience. And my, my kids are little, and by the time you, we drive out to this Christmas tree farm and cut it down and bring it back and, and, and all that stuff, um, they're just exhausted. But, um, but I, I, I am not ready for them to give up with, with what I had planned. And so this time we, I was trying to get them to decorate the tree and all this stuff. And uh, one of my kids finally just looked at it and said, can, can we just stop this? And, and I, I said, no, we cannot stop this. Um, you will put that ornament on the tree. And, um, and it literally turned, I mean, I mean and my wife and I just started laughing. It literally turned into this moment where I, it was either decorate the tree or be disciplined. I was going to discipline him for, for not being into the, into the spirit of Christmas with me. Um, it's a matter of discipline for me. And, um, and, and I, I, think we, I think we feel this. I, I think we feel that um, there, there's something about the idea of Christmas that we love, but the brutal reality is that it, it, it seems that um, peace and joy and all of these things that we long for are things that cannot be manufactured by traditions and nostalgia and, and all these different things. Um, I think we might try to hide from the messiness and craziness and um, perhaps in your life, uh, just total right now brokenness of, of our lives and our world. But the brutal reality is that um, there is no peace in our world or in our lives. And yet, in the middle of all of this, we gather this evening to be convinced again that peace is possible. With um, anger and violence and turmoil raging all around us in our world and in our lives, we gather with a defiant message that says peace on earth. Peace on earth. 
And the prophet Isaiah is promising that, that that is possible. I think the cynic inside of us says it's not, and Isaiah is here to say it is. And it's happened with the coming of Jesus. Let's look at this famous passage in, in two ways. The, the, the presence of darkness and the promise of peace. Let's look at the presence of darkness. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Isaiah is picking up on theme that is very prominent in Scripture. Um, all throughout the Bible, the imagery of light um, and darkness is used in, in a lot of different ways. But every time, however, it's being talked about, whether it's through a moral lens or a worldview lens or, or whatever, um, every time light represents God, His design, His intentions, um, and darkness represents the absence of such things. And there is one Hebrew word um, associated with the imagery of light that kind of bears all the meaning of light. And it's a word that you've probably heard before, maybe one of the few, it's one of the few popular um, Hebrew words that a lot of people know, and it's, it's shalom. Shalom is translated peace in the scriptures, but it conveys much more than, than peace. It, it bears the meaning of wholeness, of completeness, um, of perfect flourishing. Shalom is the culture of God's design. It's, it's how he designed things. It's how he intended things. It is that um, reality of creation that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 before um, the undoing of shalom in, by sin in Genesis 3. And so in Hebrew, light represents shalom, and darkness represents the violation of shalom. And what is important to note here is that Isaiah view, views darkness, not light, not shalom. He views darkness as normative to our existence. He says the people walking in darkness, those dwelling in the land of deep darkness, as if darkness is the normative pattern of our existence. Walk is used to describe that, that normal way of being. And, and he says the people walk in darkness. Likewise, the word dwell is, speaks of our normal um, place of being, our habitation, the, the, world, the inescapable world around us. And Isaiah says that we are a people dwelling in deep darkness. We walk in darkness we dwell in darkness. Isaiah views your existence and my existence as utter darkness. And I would say, though it's maybe hard to swallow that news, this is true. Um, the fall that we see, the fall of Genesis 3, when we say fall, we're talking about the moment when we believe mankind rebelled against its creator. In Genesis 3... It is, it is so enveloping that it has essentially created a veil over all existence such that we live constantly in its shadow, in the darkness of the fall. And shalom has become something that eludes us all, despite our desires to try to produce it. And is there any evidence that you can provide to dispute that view of existence? either from the perspective of the world or from your own personal life. Can you really dispute the way Isaiah sees existence? When you consider the history of the world, start big. Has there ever been a moment of shalom? Has there ever been a moment of perfect 
peaceful flourishing. What is our human history if not the destructive ability of every culture and every nation? We cannot deny the darkness of human history, and this is on display as we speak. Internationally, our world is raging. What's particularly burdening me right now, and I'm sure it is you, hope it is you, is what looks like is becoming the humanitarian crisis of our lifetime in Aleppo. And I've been just overwhelmed by the darkness of the stories and pictures that are coming out of there and overwhelmed by any ability to do anything about it. I, mean, we, I, can, I can give resources and I pray and you should be doing the same. But this, this sense of this cannot be and, and worst of all, I can't stop it. I can't fix it. When you consider um, closer to home, where we are in our nation, we are a polarized culture that is deeply angry, deeply divided, where violence and killings have become normative, um, where vindictive and harmful rhetoric have become, have become so normative that it's, it's actually just kind of become painfully obvious that civility is dead and hatred is just going to reign. We're just going to be mean. That's just how our culture is now where lies and corruption and greed and sexual perversion are not just, they've not just become normal, they've become our boast. This is, this is what we do. This is how we do things. And all I'm trying to say is that we don't need to be uh, cultural snobs here. Uh, modern Western developed culture may have a refined form of darkness, but shalom is no more present here than anywhere else in our world. Going even more personal. I think we all need to admit the reality of darkness in our own lives. As Marshall said, last year's Good to the Bluegrass conference was on depression. And, um, and pastorally, what we discovered is that um, this didn't just create a space for the, for the depressed and anxious to be honest with their struggles. It created a culture of honesty across the board, um, which we as pastors are thankful for. Um, we're coming up on about a year since since that and um, it's been a heavy year walking with you all vulnerability begets vulnerability and and a lot of you have courageously started to tell the truth about the darkness that plagues you it may not be depression but it's opened the door to be honest um, and TCPC may project an image of put togetherness where everything is good and everybody is happy, but, but don't let it fool you. If you're visiting, please don't let it fool you. Shalom evades us too. Um, marriages are not as they appear here. Uh, parents and children and their relationships are not as they appear. Um, all of these cool, stylish young adults that have been coming to our church are not as they appear. Not as cool, and, I mean, I guess you are cool and stylish, but... Uh, <laughs> You're not, you're, internally, you're not as cool as you look. Um, you got a mess. We've got mess. Um, your ministry leaders, elders, pastors, we are not as we appear. That's not to say that all of us go around hiding dark and, uh, and sordid lives. It's just to say that our lives aren't as clean and put together as you might assume from the outside looking in on, on us. Um, we are not the exception to darkness. And I celebrate the fact that it seems as though now more than ever, um, people in our community are, are beginning to admit that. Um, so, listen, his assessment of the way things are, um, I personally think he's spot on. 
a people walking in darkness, a people dwelling in the land of deep darkness. And perhaps maybe you're one of those people still unwilling to admit this darkness. Um, either the darkness of the world around you, or you're pro probably even more importantly, the more intimate darkness of your own life and your own story. You might be tempted to say, it's not that bad. Um, I'm not perfect. The world's not perfect. Perhaps there are shadows in the world and in my life, but a people walking in darkness, dwelling in a land of deep darkness, this seems to be a bit of an overstatement. And the only, the only challenge I would say to you is that um, we only say th things like that because darkness is all we have ever known and our eyes have adjusted to the darkness. We are like cave creatures who have learned to exist just in utter darkness because it's all we've ever known and we've gotten used to it. And we're trying to make the best of it. But if we ever saw the light of God's truth, of God's glory, if we ever were given a glimpse of his shalom, it would blind us with its goodness, which is what the prophet is promising that this dark world is going to be blinded with a flash of light. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then verses 3 through 5 vividly imagine the expulsion of darkness with the language of conquest. He talks about a war, but a different war. A war that is going to be waged against the darkness, banishing the darkness of our world. He speaks of this great light as though it is this person who is going to be, to be waging a war. He says, you, that the light is a person. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. It's this, it's this image of a nation rejoicing that somebody has come, this light has come, and he has brought shalom. Four. This is what he's done. The yoke of his burden, the staff of the shoulder, the rod of oppression has been broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying that there will be a war on war. That, that the violence that we're used to will be, will be destroyed and burned as fuel for our fires. The idea is that the figure is going to conquer and utterly annihilate this darkness that has for so long enveloped the world. He will wage a war, but the aftermath of his war will be shalom, will be nations rejoicing. This is a war, unlike our wars, that end in destruction and devastation. His war against the darkness will end in shalom. So who is this great warrior of light? If you were, if you were um, unfamiliar with the story, I wonder what you would imagine here, this great warrior who, who will come and has the power to banish the darkness of our world. The prophet takes a strange turn. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. A child, a newborn child, will be the conquering light of shalom. That's the prophetic promise, and indeed, that is what we celebrate. That is what we are here to celebrate in Christmas. We've seen the presence of darkness. Let's move now to the advent of peace. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on this child's shoulders. 
His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government, of the increase of His reign, He will be a king, and of the increase of His reign, and then notice what He couples with His reign, of the increase of His reign and of shalom, there will be no end. This child is destined to be a king. The government will be on his shoulders. But this is a king that the world has never known because as his government increases, as his reign increases, peace increases with it. Uh, in fact, it says that his, his reign will have no end, therefore his shalom will have no end. Unlike every power of the world, which always leads to oppression and destruction, the more this king reigns, the more shalom will spread. Now, fast forward to a seemingly random moment in time. Shepherds keeping watch over their flocks in the darkness of night. By the way, don't miss that about the Christmas narratives. All of them take place at night in the darkness where a light will shine. To use Isaiah's imagery. The darkness of the shepherd's night is invaded by the light of heavenly glory. And we read this. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, shalom. This newborn king whose reign will restore peace on earth. And we see this in the life of Jesus. He invites the world and he invites you to discover Him as Lord, as Master, as King, as authority, to submit to His government, so to speak. But in so doing, He promises that you will all also discover the shalom under His reign. His call is always one of allegiance. Repent and follow Me. That's what He says. Repent and follow Me. Repent of what is natural to you. Repent of the way you see things. Repent of the way you do things. Repent of what is right in your own eyes. Repent of your own self-rule, your self-autonomy, your self-reign. Repent of your seat of lordship in your life and submit all of you to the Lord Jesus. Friends, Jesus will accept nothing less than that, which is why He tells you to count the cost before you choose to follow Him. Because it is truly a journey of submission to His reign. Essentially, what will happen for you if you become a Christian is your newfound ambition and disposition is to surrender to His Lordship. But, Jesus also views, so He's uncompromising in that He will be the King and He will reign in this relationship, but Jesus views His demand of surrender as freedom. He says... Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. All of you who are exhausted and burdened by the darkness of your story, your life, the world around you, and the darkness of your own soul. All of you who are burdened by the oppression of other authorities and reigns in your life, all of you burdened by the darkness, come to me and you will find rest for your soul. For, and he doesn't, he doesn't compromise authority here. He's still going to own you. He's still going to be his Lord. He says, for my yoke, so he still owns you, but my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke, his burden, his authority is the only one that does not lead to oppression and destruction, but flourishing and freedom his reign brings peace. 
And might I state the obvious, and if you're here and wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, maybe you're investigating Christianity and what we claim and believe, might I make something, make a point that should be obvious, maybe it's not obvious. No other authority and reign works like this. Of course, history books tell us this is true of cultures and nations, but I want you to have the courage to admit that it's true for you as well. In other words, how's it going with you as your own king? How's that work out? How is your track record of self-rule? In our most honest moments, we will have to admit that I am a terrible king of my own life. And so are you. And your reign over your life has wreaked havoc upon your life. That's true for all of us. Every time we choose what is right in our own eyes, it never works. We choose what is in our own eyes will bring us joy and we're left saddened. Every time we choose what in our own eyes will be the quick fix to our loneliness, we are left more isolated. Every time we choose what in our own eyes will ultimately fix our pain, we only find ourselves more deeply wounded. Every time, and we do in our own eyes, we choose what we think will ultimately satisfy us. We try to manufacture satisfaction. It only brings misery. Every time you try to manufacture shalom that you're longing for, it brings destruction. But why is Jesus any different? Perhaps it is true that every authority, including my own, undermines shalom. But why should I believe that his authority is any different? Well, you would have to admit that he is one unconventional king. I am claiming that he is a different king, that his reign leads to freedom, not oppression, to shalom, not destruction. And you would have to admit, just on the outside looking in, he certainly is a different king. Just consider the circumstances of his birth that we see, that we celebrate. Laying in a manger rather than a palace, what kind of king is this? And his birth is like that because he's like that. There is nothing pretentious about this man. Pompous, showy, violent, manipulative, or oppressive about him. Nothing we have come to expect from authority. And he could have it. He could have all of that. He displayed omnipotent power. We know he had this. But that power was always only used for the good of others, not himself. What other authority could handle power like that? What other authority could have so much power and yet you trust that authority? And yet Jesus has this power and he showed again and again and again that he will only use that power for us to flourish. So despite what this king could be, all we see is humility and meekness and tenderness and compassion and love. And of course, the unconventional birth of Jesus, the unconventional life of Jesus culminates with the unconventional death of Jesus, the unconventional coronation of the king, where they dressed him in a royal robe um, only to spit at him and beat him and mock him, Hail, King of the Jews. Where they crowned him, but not with the crown of gold, but with the crown of thorns. And where he was seated, not upon a throne, but hung from a cross. And here is the subversive beauty of it all. 
these were in fact his most kingly acts. Because Calvary is where the king has proved once and for all that he is worthy of your honor, allegiance, love, trust, worship. He is, honor, he is worthy of your life. As the king has proven so by laying down his life to protect his subjects, that the king would rather be destroyed than to see you destroyed. He is forever known as the king who serves the very people who submit to him. Now I ask you, where will you find authority in reign like this? So, final application. Do you believe that peace is possible? Um, every week of Advent, where we've picked up these themes, what I've done with my sermons, and I've only preached a couple of them here, but what, I, what I've done with these themes is I've pressed them in um, by application, and I've challenged you, I've ch I basically challenged your commitment to them. Like when we talked about the theme of love, I, I challenged you, do you, do you really think that love is Paul? Like, do you really think God loves you? Like, and I mean that. Do you really think that God loves you, that love is possible? Last week when I preached on joy, I, I asked our people, um, do you really think joy is possible? Do you really think that God wants you to be happy and can make you happy in himself? And this week I want to press in and ask you, do you really believe that peace is possible? And I want you to wrestle with that. Within our world, within your life, within the recesses of your tormented mind and soul, is peace even a possibility? Or are we just destined to this turmoil of world, of life, of marriage, of job, of thorns that infest the ground, of our souls? Are we just destined to the turmoil of this existence, or is peace actually possible? Let me be very upfront and honest with you um, as I can. Under the rule and reign of any earthly power, and I'm going to include you there, under the rule of any earthly power, including your own self-rule, the answer to that question is absolutely not. It has never worked, and it never will. But under the rule and reign of this humble King Jesus, the answer is absolutely yes. Peace actually is possible for you and for our world. You might say, then, well, where's the peace? <laughs> I don't see peace on earth like was promised in the passage. I don't, I don't see, it says here, the, that um, he will be the prince of peace, the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. Where's this peace? And uh, there are a lot of ways to answer that. Um, one important way um, is that um, what, what Jesus does is he redefines the definition of peace away from American prosperity and comfort. Like peace is only achieved by complete comfortability. Um, and he redefines it into this, this, this thing that the scripture says transcends all understanding. Meaning um, there is a transcendent peace that, shouldn't, that doesn't make sense according to my circumstances, but my peace actually transcends my circumstances. That there is this supernatural peace available to us that we can walk through the turmoil and violence of our lives and still have peace. That, that, that's, that's promised in Scripture. But in light of Advent, here's what I would say to that. Where is the peace in the world? Where is the peace in my life? I would say that his reign is not yet complete. 
We have experienced tastes of it as we submit to his ways, but we have not experienced the fullness of surrender, and this world certainly has not known the fullness of the king. The light has flashed. The light has dawned. But it has not yet been seen to its fullness. His first advent was the inauguration of his shalom, and his second advent will be the consummation of shalom. And this enables, this, this promise enables us now, even when our lives and, and the world that is all around us is still filled with so much chaos and destruction, these promises, these assurance of his first advent and his longing for his second advent, this confidence allows us to still rejoice and proclaim the news of peace in the midst of chaos and destruction. At the end of Christmas vacation, if you know it, the, families, the family ends up singing and dancing all together um, in response to good news that was delivered to them. Clark got his Christmas bonus. And, uh, and, 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 um, and everybody ends up uh, dancing and singing and celebrating. But what's great about it is that they're doing so surrounded by just the rubble of their disorder. The house is a mess. The tree's still a mess. Everything's a mess. The old man's toupee has been burned off and all that stuff. And everybody's just singing and dancing because the invasion of this good announcement, this, this good news. Everything's still a mess, and yet they rejoice. And that's what we're doing here tonight. That's what Advent and Christmas is all about. Surrounded by the mess of this world and our lives, surrounded by the destruction of the fall, surrounded by so much darkness, we gather in protest to celebrate the good news of peace on earth. Shalom has begun with the first Advent, and shalom will forever reign with the second Advent. Let me pray. Give us your peace, O oh God. Overwhelm us, particularly the hurting. Lord, we do pray for those in Aleppo. And we pray that you would comfort them, and we pray that you would bring an end to the darkness and to the madness. We pray particularly for the orphan and widows. Um, God, let, let your kingdom come. Come, Jesus, and end the chaos and destruction and violence of our world. And I pray that now for our lives. I pray that you and your gospel would come and overwhelm um, the darkness that we're walking in personally. And um, while we wait for your second advent, Lord, we come to your sacrament as a promise of your coming peace. In Jesus' name, amen.